words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. It's been an interesting week, an interesting week or a couple of weeks in politics, uh, with the election campaign ramping up and Nicky Harder's book Dirty Politics still rippling out and having effects. Uh, and I think there's more to come. One of the interesting things about that is the research that says actually a whole lot of people don't take a lot of notice of the election campaign and kind of just vote on who they voted last time. Uh, and then there's an equally large group who aren't going to vote at all, probably even larger, just encourages them. So it's best not to get involved and best not to vote. People trapped or stuck in, uh, in their mindset. And I'm, I'm probably as guilty of that as anyone, really. And on the international stage, we have trouble in Ukraine and the horrific events going on in Syria and Iraq. And again, uh, it seems to me that uh, people are stuck in particular mindsets. The ISIS crusade, and I use that word deliberately because it mirrors exactly what we Christians did in the crusades eight and nine hundred years ago. It's a little hard to see it, but that is what we did. Targeting all those who do not conform to their idea of one should, what one should believe or how one should behave. What are we to do with all of this? This morning we've heard the beginning of the great foundational story of Judaism. Our people were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord God heard our cry, rescued us, and brought us through the wilderness into the promised land. It is a story that has been recited every Passover for at least the last 3,000 years, and on many occasions in between. And here is the beginning. Moses, who grew up in an Egyptian court and is now a shepherd far, far away. Mount Horeb is in the north of Israel. And he's now happy with his life, with his wife's family. It's a good life, the life of a shepherd. Everything seems sorted. And he stumbles on a burning bush. A bush that does not actually burn. And his curiosity takes the better of him and he comes closer and there he meets the God of his ancestors. And his life is turned upside down. Everything that he took for granted is changed, gone, and he's given a new identity in its place. A new sense of who he is. We might call that vocation. He is now the one who will free the Hebrew people. Because of that chance encounter... He now, will, he now has to see God, the world, and himself differently. The God of his ancestors is not a distant God, but a God who cares and will rescue the Hebrew people. And he, Moses, is now the vehicle by which that will happen. It is a seismic shift. He is taken out of everything that he has taken for granted, and he is forced to look at the world in a different way. For Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses. And that story, which is undergirded 
The Hebrew people's understanding of themselves for the last 3,000 years is reenacted in Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom God meets us in our slavery and rescues us. Now, for Jesus' disciples, they thought they had that sorted out, exactly what that meant. And last week, we had Jesus asking them, who do people say I am and who do you say I am? And they responded, well, Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus replies, because he's Simon at this point, I call you Rock, Peter, and on you I will build my church. It's all going well. And then we have this week's reading, which begins with, from that time on. So that's from that time on, from that time on when Peter was feeling good about himself. And almost immediately, they're being invited into another seismic shift. Because one of the truths about our God is that God is our God is not a God who allows us to sit easily in our preconceptions about how the world is and how it should operate. Our God is a God of seismic shifts. In fact, every time we have it sorted out and we think we know exactly what's happening, this should be a warning sign to us that a seismic shift is on the way. And we have a choice about whether we take that seriously or not, but we should never be sitting comfortably with our preconceptions about who God is and who we are and our place in the world. If we are, we're missing the point. And certainly Jesus' disciples found out that they were missing the point. Because Jesus starts telling them that he has to go to Jerusalem, where he will be abused by the chief priests and elders and the scribes, and he will be put to death, and then he will rise again. And this does not fit with their idea of what is supposed to happen. They understood Jesus to be the one who would... Well, they understood the future to look pretty much like the the present, except they were the ones that were going to be on the top of the pile. Jesus was going to be the ruler, the king. And because they were his number one followers, they were going to be close behind. Like most people, I think, their hopes for the future were shaped by their desire for a long life, safety, health, and maybe, probably, a bit of wealth and power. Dying and being abused was not part of the equation. But Jesus isn't offering a future based on long life, safety, health, wealth and power. Jesus is offering the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And that is a very different thing. That is the seismic shift he is inviting them and us into. Because as we've seen over the readings over the last few months, this kingdom is a radically inclusive world, fueled by God's infinite compassion and love for all humanity, not just people like me. It's a kingdom not built in obedience to rules and laws, not motivated by maintaining rigid boundaries. It's not motivated by a long life, 
or desires for safety and health and wealth and power. Instead, it's a life lived in response to God's love, to God's welcome and embrace. It's a life lived in such a way that you and I and all people are filled with God's life and love, and all are treated as sons and daughters of the living God. And Jesus says the only way to that world is through the cross. On the cross, Christ breaks the power of darkness. On the cross, we in turn shed our deep desires for the good life for ourselves. And that is a seismic shift. It is a radical re-understanding of who we are and what we desire from life. It's as radical as the reorientation Moses was invited into. And it was hard work for the early disciples to grasp it. It was hard work for the early church to grasp it. And it's hard work for us to grasp it. There are two themes that come out of this for me. And the first of this is vocation. Vocation is who we are. Moses, like the early disciples, was given a vocation, a new sense of who they were. And so are we. One of the interesting things about being ordained is that people then talk to you about being called to the ministry. Like somehow my ministry is the super duper one. And, uh, and everyone else can kind of sit back and go, well, it's okay because we have those guys over there because they are called to the ministry. They're the ones with the vocation and we can just sit pretty in the pews. And for a long time, the church has operated on that basis. In fact, I was roundly told off at one vestry meeting in a parish where I was a curate for suggesting in a sermon that everyone had a ministry. And the vestry told me quite soundly, no. You are the one with the ministry. We just pay you. (laughs) However, the reality is we are all given a vocation. And we're given it at baptism. Which is why our font sits in the middle of the passageway in an annoying place to remind us that we are a people called to a vocation through our baptism. Not through ordination, through our baptism. That is the foundational thing. And our ministry is how we live that vocation out. Now, we often talk about vocation and ministry as an individual thing. My vocation, my ministry. But in reality, vocation and ministry are corporate things. It is who we are that is the most important thing. And how we live that out. What is my place in this corporate identity and what is my role in the ministry of this place? For us at Gay Par, that vocation is shaped by the reading we heard from Paul's letter to Romans. As I said in the pew sheet, that is our reading. It's on the window over there. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If they are thirsty, give them drink. 
Paul understood these seismic shifts. He'd gone through it himself. He kept going through it. I'm sure that that road to Damascus experience was just the beginning for him. He was a Pharisee. His life was shaped and ruled and governed by the law of Moses and all the laws that had been built up to ensure that the law of Moses could never be transgressed. And yet it is Paul who argues that actually the way of Christ means laying down the law. That it is a different thing. Imagine that seismic shift. Most of the church couldn't get their head around what he was on about. And he was in constant conflict with the leadership in Jerusalem. Who were not Pharisees. They were people like Jesus. Who came from places like Galilee. They struggled with what Paul was on about. And so in his letter to the Romans... Paul is laying out exactly what this radical shift, this seismic shift, is all about, including how we treat our enemies. How we treat everyone. Because in the end, Jesus wasn't here just for people like you and me. The life that Jesus offers, the kingdom of heaven, is for everyone. So in this place, Hene Tukiri Karamu and Henry Taratoa and maybe and others acted out what Paul wrote in that letter to the Romans. And under great duress they put their own lives at risk and treated the invading British soldiers as brothers in Christ and gave them water. So how do we live out that legacy? I think today's readings invite us to not take things at face value, first of all. And they also invite us to not be satisfied with our preconceptions. So when we go back to the big events over the last few weeks, dirty politics, election campaigns, events in Ukraine, events in Syria and Iraq... We are invited to dig deeper. To not just rest with what one or two people say. To investigate for ourselves. There's been some very, I think, unhelpful things put around about ISIS. I mean, I don't disagree with anything that's been put there, but the flavour of what is, this is what all Muslims are like. In reality, it's not what all Muslims are like. The vast majority are just as shocked and horrified by what's happening there as we are. And moderate Muslims, Sunni Muslims in those places are just as much at peril. So we need to dig deeper and to pray and to wonder what is the seismic shift that we are being invited to at this time. Because that is the way of God. So let's pause for a moment. And I invite you to think about the seismic shifts that you have experienced in your life up to this point. And what they teach you about the seismic shifts that maybe we are being invited to at this time.